0: I'm Caleb Brown, and I'd like to take this small bit of time to ask you to support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast by becoming a podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and give a donation in any amount to support our work. If you support us with $1,000 or more before the end of the year, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate a friend or loved one to receive that benefit. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you for supporting Cato and the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The shift of the U.S. from a non interventionist power to one actively preparing for war occurred in a single year, and it appears it never really shifted back. Stephen Wertheim's new book is Tomorrow the World The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. In it, he details how the U.S. began the process of truly becoming the world's police. How did American leaders understand? America's place in sort of the global order in
1: 1940. It's a very different answer if we start the year out at the beginning and if we end the year. So what so, happened? So when we start it, the answer is United States should be engaged in the world. The United States imagines itself as a leader but mostly as a kind of inspiration. The United States wants to trade and have intercourse and cooperation widely, but none of that implies to American leaders at the outset of 1940 that the United States should station its military across the world and in particular make armed commitments in Europe and Asia. We end that year in a very different situation, one that we're more familiar with from our own vantage point at the beginning of the 21st century. At that point, because of the events of the war, particularly the fall of France to Nazi Germany in the middle of 1940, a consensus is forming, not complete, but forming, that now in a world where totalitarian conquerors can actually achieve mastery of Europe and Asia, United States will have to play a very different role. And above all, it will have to be the armed enforcer of world order. What changed? Uh, By the end of 1940,
0: we're on a different footing in a sense. So as a practical matter, this was a a year before uh, the United States was attacked at at Pearl Harbor. What changes at the end of 1940 through the end
1: of 1941? There was an event that changed the equation for many foreign policy elites, not all of them, but most of them, mostly located at that time, as now, in what we'd call the Acela Corridor uh, between uh, Washington, D.C. and New York or Boston. And that big event was the Nazi conquest of France, which happened in a span of just six weeks in May and June of 1940. It was a completely unexpected event. The French, Lest we forget, uh, had the world's strongest army, and they had a very effective defense in the Maginot Line. It just wasn't that effective if you went around it. And that's what the Wehrmacht did. And so that conquest, shocking the world, including some of Hitler's own generals, meant for many U.S. elites that the United States might end up relegated to. The Western Hemisphere or even part of the Western Hemisphere because they assumed that Hitler had solved the riddle of offensive warfare. He might go on to dominate the rest of Europe in tandem with the tripartite alliance. He might conquer Britain. And so there was the specter of, do you want to live in a world where the Axis powers dominate Europe and Asia? That kind of Spectre had never existed before for American elites. Now, some Americans said, we don't, well, everybody agreed, we, they didn't want to live in that kind of world. But some Americans said, we have this tradition of non-entanglement and we can preserve uh, our freedom and territorial integrity in the new world while still committing to avoid military entanglements in Europe. Uh, So they proposed that the United States should defend the entire Western hemisphere from any outside invasion, but not go further. And that's the group that we know as the America Firsters today, the original America Firsters, having very little to do with with what's in the headlines today. Uh, But for most U.S. foreign policy elites, especially people who were actually already doing post-war planning on behalf of the State Department in places like the Council on Foreign Relations. They said that the hemisphere wasn't enough. It was not enough. The United States meant more than that. Committed to its exceptional status in the world, it needed to define the future of the world. And how could it do that if totalitarian powers ruled Europe and Asia? And in addition to that, they valued uh, liberal intercourse on a global scale such that they were willing to embark on a long-term program of enforcing the terms of international interaction, uh, not just against the Nazis and the Axis powers in World War II, but for the perpetual future. So they changed their view as to what the nature of international relations was. Previously, there had been a a, a tradition uh, with a lot of support in the American foreign policy elite uh, called internationalism, and it had usually entailed a commitment uh, to see peaceful intercourse transcend power politics and armed force, at least eventually. That's what Americans who were internationalists said that they wanted to see. Now, in the wake of the fall of France, many of these same Americans decided there's no transcending uh, armed conflict. So now a set of Americans decided if we want to have American-style Liberal interaction on a global scale. The United States better be the armed enforcer. And
0: this attitude, uh, well, just to jump way far ahead here, we talk about the blob in uh, Washington D.C. That is the the what is known as the foreign policy establishment. People who are charged with making policy in Washington D.C. and there is a pretty clear differentiation of the general attitudes of those who work in the blob and those who work in academia. Was that the case at the beginning and end of 1940? That is, uh, you know, the United States still enjoys this luxury of of having oceans on two sides. Uh, was there this uh, bifurcation, this l- large li- difference in opinion uh, in the foreign policy elite of, of 1940 and the academic uh, people who studied foreign policy uh, in the academy.
1: The foreign policy elite didn't change in sociological terms, as you're suggesting, you know, within the course of a year. Uh, so you have the same people who begin the year thinking the United States should not and will not uh, project military force into Europe and ending the year thinking that's exactly what it should do, and not only in the short term, but perhaps for all time. Uh, But there was a difference in the way the foreign policy elite was coming to understand itself, uh, because as the United States... Both intervention in the war and post war uh, global leadership or armed dominance, the term isolationism becomes used more and more uh, to explain, to give Americans a new understanding of what the United States had been in the past, what it had done wrong, and what it has had to avoid in the future. So that term uh, comes to be attached. And by the way, isolationism was not a term in circulation with any currency in the United States before the 1930s. So this is a brand new conceptualization. And that term gets attached to essentially anybody who opposes the projection of U.S. military power in Eurasia. So like uh, a Robert Taft? Robert Taft. Tell us about Robert Taft. Republican uh, senator known for being one of the foremost so-called isolationists, he would say that he is for nationalism. I'm not sure if he would say that he was for internationalism or form of internationalism, but his views were in line with the tradition of pre-World War II internationalism that we described. In fact, uh, (laughs) President Taft was one of the arch-legalists before him Uh, who had hoped that, uh, you know, through mechanisms like international law and judicial tribunals, power politics could be tamed. And Robert Taft actually had uh, continued some of that tradition himself. Um, And so uh, during the war, uh, some isolationist, he actually starts to bring back some of the old uh, previous Taft ideas about how the United States might engage uh, in a more peaceful way without making, uh, formal military commitments, uh, at least on the continent of Europe. So people like Taft and a whole set of others, like, you know, Charles Beard, who clearly was part of what would have been the blob prior to 1941, uh, come to be written off as isolationists. They're still there and they're there for a period of time, but their views, uh, become no longer, uh. Maybe, you know, I mean, Taft is too powerful to be no longer relevant as a figure, but their views clearly become uh, less, less powerful. And the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brings the United States officially into the war, really spells the end of uh, the non-interventionist or so-called isolationist as a as a serious force uh, in American foreign policy.
0: So uh, during the war, the United States was obviously engaged in uh, defeating uh, the Nazis uh, as well as uh, Japan in the war. But was there something else going on, at least in terms of how the United States viewed its role uh, in the world beyond uh, defeating uh, these
1: powers? That's what really struck me when I looked at the archives. Uh, So much has been written about the United States and World War II, and I didn't want to try to replicate or find something new about the battles themselves. But what stuck out to me is the extent of thinking about the post-war that happened, as we mentioned, even before Pearl Harbor and continued After Pearl Harbor, the United States, precisely because it was in such a luxurious position where it never faced an imminent danger of armed invasion, uh, at least against the continental United States, it had the unique luxury of any great power in the world to think ahead, to do long range post war planning. And that's exactly what it did from the outbreak of the war in Europe at the end of 1939, uh, right until the very end. Of the war. So during the war, uh, I actually think a lot of the conceptual foundations of America's new uh, world role, that of armed hegemon, were laid prior to Pearl Harbor. But after Pearl Harbor, during the war, there was intense mobilization by American elites and many Americans at the grassroots level as well. To rally the country in favor of what they were now calling internationalism as opposed to isolationism, and what that meant was creating a bulwark of legitimacy and support for the projection of U.S power after the war. It was clear that uh, it, you know basically everybody with any political significance in the United States after Pearl Harbor strongly supported the war effort. But what really bothered some of the foremost uh, policymakers and intellectuals from the very beginning uh, of U.S. entry in World War II, even when the outcome of the war was somewhat in doubt. What really bothered them was this prospect of whether the American public in particular would refuse to shoulder the burdens of leadership after the war. They were obsessed with this. And so even in 1942, the war is not going particularly well in the State Department. Now the official post-war planners, of President Roosevelt, uh, sit down and they're so worried about isolation, so-called isolationism amongst the public that they start to think, we need to create a new kind of League of Nations, even though the last one totally failed. And that was the whole reason why the United States had to install itself as the armed enforcer. But now they were thinking, we actually need to have some kind of structure, first and foremost, to make sure that the American people get behind the projection of American power globally after the war uh, in order to make it look like the United States isn't just another empire, like the British Empire or other empires, but is leading a new, unique, American-style, consensual world order. And that's uh, where I think the United Nations comes from as an American project. So uh, the United Nations, I was I was about
0: to ask uh, that uh, your book, of course, is subtitled The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. And my first thought is, well, I'm sure other countries around the world might have had something to say about that uh, at the time. I know European leaders uh, and, uh, Germany then after the war in recovery, essentially for a long time, uh, what was the attitude from Great Britain from, uh, China? Uh, I know Japan had, uh, probably a uniquely good transition Following the war, but uh, among these various countries in the world world that were affected, France in particular, uh, what was the attitude about the United States immediately following the war as this preeminent
1: power? Well, because the wartime allies won through to absolute victory, establishing an unconditional surrender over uh, Germany uh, and Japan uh, what we're really talking about in that question are the wartime allies. Uh, the occupied nations didn't have much of a say. And we're talking first and foremost about the permanent five members, uh, of the security council in the UN where the power to deal with the really difficult problems of enforcing peace, uh, was to be lodged. And they were actually quite welcoming of America's power, uh, at least initially, the British had always wanted to get the United States to join the balance of power in Europe. Uh, Certainly coming out of World War I, that was what attracted them to uh, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations more than anything else. Uh, So, you know, I I don't disagree with those who would say that when you look at uh, states that had good reason to welcome U.S. Uh, influence and power projection coming out of 1945, uh, the United States ran something like an env- empire by invitation. Uh, but as you go on, well, first of all, the you might say the more democratic test would be to look at the Universal General Assembly. Uh, and as we go on, and as the world is decolonized, the question. Uh, you know there's no kind of moment when the rest of the world gets a chance to express itself on us global hegemony it's a reality that they have to deal with and i think as the architects of the united nations understood i know i emphasized their preoccupation with the optics among the american public but they also thought that the united nations would be a useful device for managing relations among the great powers making sure that other powers got a chance to blow off steam, as Sumner Wells, the Undersecretary of State, put it in one of these post-war planning meetings referring to the small states. They thought it would create a kind of forum by which the United States uh, could hopefully get others to do some of the burden uh, of uh, policing the world and make it seem as though U.S. power was part of a kind of rules-based system.
0: This is not within the framework of the book that you present, but how important was uh, or how important were uh, the events of 1947 uh, to U.S. global supremacy?
1: So this is, you know, if there's a year when the Cold War began, it would probably be 1947, Uh, It's the year when uh, the Marshall Plan uh, goes through and the world gets, you know, essentially, or at least uh, Europe gets divided into two armed camps. Uh, And as Dean Acheson uh, advises members of Congress that in order to get these costly measures through the Congress, uh, the United States uh, essentially scares the hell out of the American people by uh, amplifying the Soviet threat. I, I'm really interested in capturing how things looked as of 1945, because I think as of then it was, I hate to use the word inevitable as a story and nothing is absolutely inevitable, but I think it was something of a foregone conclusion that there would be, um, the departure of the United States from its traditional non-entanglement tradition. And a major commitment uh, in military terms and other terms, economic, et cetera, uh, to involvement in politics in Europe and Asia. Uh, the Cold War begins in part because a set of concepts that had initially been attached in 1940 and 41 to the Axis powers get transplanted onto the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, starting a bit in 1946 and especially in 1947 and beyond. The idea that there was a free world uh, that was under attack by totalitarian conquest or subversion Uh, had already been floating around. There had already been something called the Free World Association that formed in 1941. So you might say that was the first Cold War, and it wasn't against the Soviet Union. In fact, the Soviet Union was, for part of that period, on the side of uh, the United States uh, after it was attacked. And utterly devastated. Utterly devastated. Absolutely. So those concepts get moved on to the Soviet Union. And one of the questions. Counterfactual questions I think this this analysis raises is Would it have been possible for American leaders to project power to enforce world order as they wanted to do uh, coming out of World War II without identifying and inflating a major threat that would provide the political will in Congress and the American public? in order to legitimate that project. I can't answer that question. It's a counterfactual question, but it's very much worth thinking about in our own time.
0: Well, and and it's worth thinking about uh, in part because when we look at the threat inflation that the the United States engaged in with respect to Al-Qaeda and uh, what effects that had on Al-Qaeda as an organization. That is, we boosted their profile in a way that was, in many ways, very helpful to uh, that organization's dubious success.
1: There might be something of an analogy to uh, the institution of NATO. George Kennan, the person who coined containment as a framework uh, from within the US government, uh, was initially opposed to NATO because he had started to react against, in effect, his own ideas. Uh, And he saw that if the United States created, in partnership with other North Atlantic countries, a formal alliance system clearly aimed at the Soviet Union or deterring the Soviet Union, that would cause the Soviet Union to do the same with the Warsaw Pact. And these two armed camps, there would be really no way to... um, Resolve this fundamental division uh, through the use of diplomacy. So, you know, you might say, looking at what actually happened, well, perhaps um, you know, NATO served its purpose well, and the Soviet Union did collapse. Or maybe there would have been uh, less great power hostility uh, had NATO not been formally established, as Kennan thought at the time, and instead, you know, there would have been a, a detente sooner. And perhaps the Soviet system would have collapsed sooner. Again, I don't know, but it sounds uh, rather similar to what you're describing with the uh, ever metastasizing war on terror.
0: What are the big lessons here? You say that we live in the world that these people created uh, back in the 1940s. Um, do you see any way back for the United States other than? Uh, a global power that surpasses the U.S. And even in that case, (laughs) that could be particularly troubling in terms of reaction uh, within the United States.
1: Yeah, I do think things are changing right now. And they've been changing for, ever since the war on terror uh, began to go south, uh, what, 15 years ago. Um, It's been a slow change. One of the implications I think the book has is really direct. There was a theory of the case that convinced American officials and intellectuals that the United States had to shoulder the burden of military dominance. That theory was that otherwise totalitarian powers now or in the future might achieve great armed conquest and then... Be the preeminent powers in the world. And they judged that even if the United States might remain secure and prosperous in such a scenario, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't good. And it was enough to want to avoid that scenario. Now, we don't have to, you know, we could argue about whether that was the right call or the wrong call at that time. But however you slice it, once the Soviet Union collapsed, completely. In 1991, the danger of such a uh, you know, co- totalitarian conqueror went away. And it's now been three decades. And so I think it's very hard to say that U.S. armed dominance uh, has anything like the same underpinning, the same rationale that it did originally.
0: John Mueller at the Cato Institute for uh, agencies that are charged with undertaking some task uses a phrase that has stuck with me, the self-licking ice cream cone. That is, an agency is charged with a task, and even when the problem that that agency is aimed at solving is effectively solved or is no longer a substantial priority, the self-licking ice cream cone needs to have a purpose and needs to uh, elevate uh, certain problems in such a way that they are relevant, that they are needed and that their budgets are not cut.
1: That's right. And we have more than a an ice cream cone now. We have like a giant tub. It goes beyond the immediate bureaucracies. Um, it's woven into communities whose economies are based on military production. I think it's pretty clear that there are more efficient ways of creating jobs uh, and having strong communities than through military socialism. Um, but at the same time, the path dependency that has led us to this point is extremely powerful. So I think what you're asking really is how do we get out of this and have a more sensible foreign policy debate and foreign policy? And we don't know the answer to that question. Nobody does.
0: Well, it, his historically though. I mean, the, the, the Pentagon in particular, has been an agency that has not been immune to budget cuts the way some other federal agencies have been.
1: That's right. Uh, and this is why I think things are changing. Like We don't know the exact trajectory that's going to get us from here to there, but we can see all kinds of pressures that are mounting. We see international pressures. I mean, in the 1990s, the United States could have its cake and eat it too. It actually cut Pentagon spending as a percentage of GDP throughout the 1990s, and yet it left the decade and headed into the new millennium with greater uh, armed dominance than ever, because Russia was flat on its back, China was still very poor, um, and so that that was when the unipolar moment really flowered, just as we headed into the war on terror. Unfortunately. So that was an extremely un- unfortunate confluence in the 1990s because a whole generation almost of foreign policy figures thought that there were really no trade offs domestically or internationally. And what they wanted was what was going to happen. And we are still living in the shadow of that uh, catastrophic misjudgment. But that, by the same token, means we're in very different terrain now and we're going to be in very different terrain going forward china has become much more powerful more quickly than was projected before Uh, you know for that matter you know russia still creates uh problems for a globe-spanning united states that defines its interests really expansively Uh, and now the pressures are certainly mounting domestically as well Uh, As on the right and the left, Americans feel really squeezed. Uh, They want to see benefits for their communities. And the number one uh, most popular foreign policy message when it's polled is the United States should do less by way of intervention and nation building abroad uh, so that it can focus at home. And those are messages that Barack Obama ran on in 2008. Donald Trump ran on in 2016. And I think both candidates uh, ran on it in a, in a, in a way this, this time as well, even though they had a lot of different ways of defining, uh, defining themselves on the issues this time. So we can see a lot of resistance mounting and uh, a lot of people in the Pentagon are bracing for budget cuts in the future. At the end of the day, no, though, it is going to take a political coalition with a sustained effort to change the calculus. Uh, and it's starting to happen. We've seen victories on significant issues that didn't seem possible initially. Uh, Diplomacy with Iran, uh, Congress uh, under pressure uh, called for the United States to stop aiding the Saudi-led war in Yemen, for example. Uh, I now expect that, you know, that effort is going to prove to be successful, um, even though it was vetoed by, by Trump. So, I think things are changing, and we should at least um, take some confidence from understanding in our history, both recent and distant, that what looks like an inevitable military industrial complex or self licking ice cream cone is not inevitable. Uh, It faces tension. I'm trying to figure out how to uh, explain how a self licking ice cream cone. Uh, could undermine itself. I guess you could lick all the ice cream and then the tongue would curl up or something. I don't know. But the point is, uh, this is not inevitable. And I think what is inevitable is that things are not going to go on uh, the way that American foreign policy elites expected in the 1990s.
0: Stephen Wertheim is author of Tomorrow, the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.